Good morning. Well, today we are continuing our study through the parables of Jesus. And uh, was that a clap? Did someone clap? I'm just going to believe that someone was clapping because that just, that, and not for me. I, I just think the parables are amazing. I just, uh, and I got caught off guard. I'm sorry. Um, we are continuing our study through the parables of Jesus, which are so enriching and helpful. Uh, you know, parables are these earthly short stories that have a heavenly meaning, that have a spiritual meaning, things that we cannot see and we don't know and we don't interact with. These earthly, simple, practical stories uh, teach us those, uh, those spiritual truths. And so we're looking through the parables uh, this morning, and the parable that we're going to look at today is connected with uh, the idea of lost and found. It's... Um, uh, it's a lost and found type parable. And so it got me thinking about lost and found because the words lost and found are, are within this chapter in Luke 15. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. But in Luke 15, we have this idea of lost and found. And so I thought of lost and found just in my own life. Uh, I, don't, I don't own any sheep. And, uh, and I, as far as I know, I haven't had a coin in a long time. But I was trying to think, like, what have I lost? And you know, we have a lost and found here at church. Yeah, I almost don't want to tell you because I get so much stuff back there. I mean, my kids' birthday presents, Christmas presents, Courtney's gotten a gift before. I mean, like, so we, we have a lost and found. It's over there, and um, it's, been, it, it's one of those things where you know that people lose things, and they want to get them back, and you want to make it available. And so I also looked in our community, are there any traces of lost and found in our community? And there are. Have you ever walked by a, a telephone pole or something and you saw a sign that said lost or missing? Uh, you know, someone lost a pet, a dear pet. You know, we don't want to lose our pets. We love them. They're like family. They're our best friends. And so I looked up some lost and found missing photos. This is one of them. That's a turtle, if you can't see it. And next to the turtle are nunchucks. It says missing pet turtle and nunchucks. Appears slow, but it's very dangerous. And uh, eventually we'll, we'll come home, but uh, evildoers beware. That's, that's that picture. Uh, there's another one for a lost dog. Uh, and what's interesting about this one, it says, no reward, keep the dog. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, if, if it were a cat, I'd understand. But uh, at the bottom it says, if found, keep the dog, don't keep the dog, I don't care. And I just thought that was so funny. That just reminded me of, of my neighbors. Anyway. Uh, so that's a lost dog. Today, we're looking at a parable. Uh, Jesus uses the parable of a lost sheep. And if he had a poster or something like that, it'd probably look like that, the lost sheep, uh, an eternal reward if you find them, uh, 1-800-FOR-JESUS. And this idea of this lost sheep is very popular, but I, I want you to spend a few moments with me reading the text, thinking about what Jesus said uh, in a way to where you're open to what God is telling you that he wants you to do. What does he want you to do with this eternal truth? God's word, where he gives this parable, so popular, but the familiar, the familiar has a way of, uh, of becoming, uh, becoming irrelevant to us. If it's so familiar to us, we can miss it. So I'm going to go to Luke chapter 15, uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, I want to give you the context and the problem that is set up here, why Jesus gives the parable. It begins in Luke 15, verse 1. 
all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So this tells us the context of why Jesus gives the parable. And it begins with Jesus is somewhere in his ministry. Now, if, if you're following Luke, if you've been studying through Luke, this is likely the last year of Jesus's ministry, his life. But we don't know exactly. The, the Gospels aren't chronological really like that, so there's no way to tell. But this is an important story that is well known, where he's with tax collectors and sinners, and it's because not that he's just going out to them, back, uh, just going out of his way to go to them. It is because they are approaching him. They want to come to him to hear him. Now, you got to know who these tax collectors and sinners are. Tax collectors, if you're unfamiliar, these were the traitors of their day. Not the traitors like barters. I mean like traitors. They, they went against their country. They went against their family. They were, they were hated by their fellow man. Their neighbors hated them. Tax collectors were Jewish men that were employed by, at this time, the Roman Empire to, to collect taxes from the Jews. Now, the Jews, according to the Old Testament, if you look back in the Old Testament, God forbid the Jews to treat each other like this. And so the Jews saw those men that became tax collectors as traitors, and they hated them, and they thought they were sinning and unclean because not only were they fraternizing with the Gentiles, but they were joining the Gentiles to oppress them. So tax collectors were hated. Uh, and then you have the sinners. This is another label that has a lot of meaning to it. These sinners in, in certain Jewish commentary, like think of it as like Old Testament commentary on the New Testament. The way that they would view the sinners, they called them the people of the land. We would say uh, the, the slum of the earth. The, the people that were in our day, in our translation, we would say these are the atheists, these are the non-religious, they don't fear God, they don't care about God. Uh, they're not just Gentiles. The sinners are people that have no faith, no allegiance to God, no reverence for God, and they definitely don't respect your God or how you want to treat your God. So these are like the atheists, the non-faith type people uh, of their day, and they were unclean. And unclean is a word that doesn't mean like they didn't take showers. Unclean as in, these are the people that were spiritually impure. They, they were not godly, holy, or righteous. Morally, they weren't even righteous in a lot of ways. And so you have this scene where Jesus is teaching, and then these tax collectors and sinners, both groups, hated by their neighbors. They, would be, uh, they were coming to Jesus and they wanted to hear what he had to say. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. Or you could use the word grumbling. Maybe, maybe your, your translation, if it's old enough, it says murmuring. They were murmuring. They were grumbling. They, they hated that these groups of people were coming to listen to Jesus. And, and why did they hate it? Well, they hated him for three reasons. Uh, in verse 1, it says, they were approaching him to listen to him. Jesus attracted these so-called sinners. He attracted them. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were jealous about this because you know who didn't attract them? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees saw themselves as the righteous. They saw themselves as the men in the community that if people would live like them, they'd be better. They saw themselves as the examples. They saw themselves as the ones who really should be in power, really be in leadership. They thought highly of themselves, and it just boiled them to death that that even though the tax collectors and sinners wouldn't come listen to them, which they should, they're going to listen to this false teacher. So they hated that they were coming to Jesus. Jesus attracted the sinners. The second reason is Jesus not only attracted them, he welcomed them. Jesus welcomed these unclean, impure, sinful, low-down, dirty people. He welcomed them. And this word welcome doesn't just mean, sure, you can come in. This isn't the guy that's a good guy that says, oh, I'd give the shirt off my back for anybody. But when it comes to his own family, when it comes to deeper relationships, he wants nothing to do with you. This isn't that kind of story. This word for welcome is like what's used in Romans 14, where Paul writes to the church to welcome one another because we've been welcomed by God. It's more than hospitality. It's embracing. It's honoring. It's respecting. It's loving. It's treating someone not just pretending, but actually treating them as someone who's equal to you, someone who's made in the image of God, someone who deserves respect and honor, someone that you should care for, someone that should get every bit of care that you get. It's welcoming them. So Jesus welcomed them. They hated that. And not only that, but Jesus built relationships with them. When it says that he ate with them, the term for eating, the idea of meals is not like our day today. Like today, you should go to pack lunch right after this. But if it were next week, you should go to Freddy's because Freddy's is great. And if you go to Freddy's and you sit down, you're likely going to sit next to a bunch of people in our community, but are you going to talk with them? Likely no. Do you know them? Are, Are you building a relationship with them? No, you're just eating next to them. In this day, they didn't have restaurants like that for the most part. They didn't have things like that. The idea that he ate with them is like a meal in someone's house or someone's courtyard. It's the idea of he not only welcomed them, but he built a relationship with them. He wanted to know them, to know them personally. Now, just think for a moment. How difficult is it for you to build a real relationship with a stranger, someone you don't know? Are you introverted? Are you afraid of new relationships? Do you keep people at arm's length? All of us in some ways have certain barriers and guards up to building relationships because it's hard. It's risky. Jesus was eating with them, meaning he, was, he wasn't just getting to know about them. He was getting to know them. He went beyond being a neighbor to an acquaintance, even to the point of a friend. You would invite friends over for that kind of thing. So he was welcoming them and building a relationship with them, and it just made them angry. They hated it. And that's the context. You have these sinners and these tax collectors uh, disliking it. Now, I wanted to give you an example of this because it's not just in his day. It is in our day. But I want you to understand how ingrained this was in their culture to separate yourself from other people. Have you ever wanted to not, I, I don't want to be associated with so-and-so. I don't want to be connected with this person or these people or whatever. I don't want to be on that side of the aisle. I don't want to be, I, I don't want to connect with, I have no business with them. That was so ingrained in their culture, just like it is today, that in Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Peter, after two decades 
two decades after Jesus rose from the dead, committed this same offense. Peter, the apostle Peter was with Jesus for three years, and that was around 30 AD, Jesus dies. Almost the end of the 50s AD, or maybe the middle, the middle 50s, two decades after Peter had been a, an apostle, he'd been ministering the church, he did the same thing. In, in Galatians chapter 2, and verse 11, it says, but when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, that's his, his name, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Paul writing to the Galatians. They were there. They knew about this. And he said, when Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, which Galatia is not a city, it's a region. When Peter came here, when you know about Peter coming, when he came there, I opposed him to his face. He was condemned. Why? Verse 12, for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. Gentiles are like non-Jewish people. You know, they're probably having a barbecue. And before people came from James, James is the apostle James. He's the um, half-brother of Jesus. He was the kind of like the lead pastor in Jerusalem, you could say, uh, for the converted Jews that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's one of the top leaders in Jerusalem. When Jewish, other Jewish leaders came from James, meaning Jerusalem, when they came from the Jewish leaders, they came to Antioch, and Peter, who was just eating with the Gentiles, stopped eating with them, separated himself for this very reason. And Paul is saying, I condemned him, I opposed him to his face. I publicly rebuked him. This is the only instance in all the Bible where an apostle rebukes another apostle publicly. He opposed him to his face. It was such a big deal. Why? Because if you read later in Galatians 2, it was contrary to the gospel. It was opposite of what God wanted. Now, I give that story to say, if Peter made the same mistake 20 years after he had been walking with Jesus, don't think that we are free of this uh, perception of people and this, this fault of separating, separating ourselves from others. We can make the same mistake. So, uh, so it was an ingrained thing. So the problem is lostness. That's the problem. The context of the story, the context of the parable, you have the problem, there's lostness. And there's two characters here that are clearly lost. There's the Pharisees and Sadducees, which we'll just call self-righteous. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are represented by self-righteousness. They thought they were good, they were righteous, they were right with God, they followed all the laws, they even tied their mint and their spices, they, they did all the right things, they thought really highly of themselves, they were proud of themselves, they're the self-righteous. Now, they were lost and didn't know it. That's the problem with them. They were lost and didn't realize they were lost. Jesus many times said they're blind. They are blind guides. They are so lost, they literally don't know they're lost. That's how lost they are. They, they don't even see how lost they are. They're lost and they don't know it. And then you have the, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, they were lost but weren't worth it. What I mean by that is the problem that Jesus steps into 2,000 years ago are the ones that were not self-righteous, that were considered sinners, they were not worth going out to and reaching. People that were supposedly God's people didn't have the desire or see the need to go out of their way to reach them. That's the problem. They're lost, but they're not worth it. They're not worth going to and sacrificing for. And so to respond to their disdain and rejection of sinners, Jesus gives three parables in the rest of Luke 15 to answer this lostness problem, the self-righteous and the sinners. Here is Jesus' answers. Now, we're only going to go over two because 
they're long. You know, if we, we don't have enough time to go through all three. But the problem is uh, lostness, and these parables are given to address that lostness. So the problem is lostness, and when Jesus starts the parable, it's clear that his solution is seeking or finding. It uses the word find multiple times in these, in these parables. The idea is seeking. The problem is they're lost. What they need is for someone to go reach them, to find them, to seek them out. That's Jesus' answer. So verse 3, so he told them this parable. This is the answer to the context, the problem of the lostness, their lostness. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? That word until is important. So Jesus, instead of just rebuking the Pharisees and Sadducees right out, instead of just saying, you guys are just the worst, which he does. He says that in, in other contexts. He gently tells them to try to correct them. What if it were you? Put yourself in the right shoes. Which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, which one of you wouldn't leave the 99 to go seek the one that was lost until you find it? So I want you to think selfishly for you. You would do this. That's the context. That's the idea. You would go and seek the one to find them. Now, Jesus gives this parable on purpose to these self-righteous, Bible-believing, Bible-knowing, Bible-memorizing men. He gives it to them because it relates to an Old Testament prophecy. As far as I know from my study, this is the largest prophecy in the Old Testament that's connected to any parable. And so if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 34, what Jesus is doing is connecting this issue, this problem of lostness, with an Old Testament prophecy that every Jew in his audience would understand and know, every male Jew at least, would know this story. Uh, they would understand this prophecy. It was one of the major prophets. So in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1, I want to read it to you. I'm going to read a lot of Ezekiel 34 on purpose, so I want you guys to hang with me. This is really important to understand the parable of the lost sheep. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel the prophet speaking God comes to him, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Soon you realize he's not talking about literal shepherds, which becomes clear through chapter 34. But this is the prophecy that Ezekiel is giving to all the people in Israel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? Woe to the shepherds. Just to tell you, the shepherds represent the leaders in their culture, the elders of their culture. Uh, this is also why in the New Testament, even though the word pastor, poimen in Greek, it's only used once referring to actual pastors. Pastoring is the idea. The reason why we use pastor so much, pastor means shepherd, it's because these are the leaders, the elders of the people. And that's in Old Testament and in the New Testament, the same context. Uh, shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? Verse 3, you eat the fat, you wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or get this, or sought the lost. 
Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. Now just, I don't want to go too much in the Old Testament. The high hill are the places where false worship and idol worship was. God is clearly not talking about literal shepherds and literal sheep. He's, it's so clear. Anybody reading this and hearing this prophecy is like, oh, I think he's talking about us. He is. So he, when Jesus says, I care about, when God said in the Old Testament, I care about my flock, he's talking about his people. My flock was scattered over, all, over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. Skip to verse 10. Go back and read all of chapter 34. It's, the whole chapter is about this. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. He's talking about the elders of the people, the leaders of the people. I'm against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding my flock or the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. Uh, false wolves, wolves that eat sheep. This is a connection to the New Testament of why we speak of false teachers this way and false leaders this way. Verse 11, for this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself... I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. That imagery is all over the major and minor prophets of, of, of the Gentiles, of the nations, even the Jews who are about to be punished and, and placed in captivity. They are in darkness they do not see, they do not know. And God says, I will rescue them. I will save them. Verse 15, I will tend my flock and let them lie down. Psalm 23, I will let them lie down. Speaking of like green pastures and next water. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured and strengthen the weak, but I will destroy the fat and the strong. Now the fat and the strong, these are the false ones that are abusing and oppressing the lost, I will shepherd them with justice. So when Jesus gives this parable of the lost sheep, this isn't coming out of left field. This isn't like, um, like the farmer, even though the farmer parables do connect back to some of the prophecies. This idea is big because this is one of the largest prophetic words against God's people using this imagery. And so Jesus is telling them, uh, let me tell you this story about the lost sheep. And any Jewish man there that's hearing this is immediately connecting uh, I know one of the larger prophecies about this, about how God is a good shepherd seeking the lost, and he's upset when we're not tending them. So Jesus is bringing this up on purpose, connecting these two ideas. And he tells them in plain language that he fulfills this prophecy. Jesus tells the people, preaches to them, saying, I'm fulfilling Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, Ezekiel chapter 34 is fulfilled with God rescuing his people again in that immediate context, but there's a messianic context, a prophetic context of later when Jesus was fulfilling this in his day. In John chapter 10, verses 15 and 16, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. So Jesus is 
Couldn't make it more clear. He's talking about people, not sheep. And he's saying, I am their shepherd. He's referring back to Ezekiel 34. This is a prophetic fulfillment that Jesus is fulfilling. And he is their shepherd. And he's going to make one flock out of what seems to be multiple flocks. And he's bringing them together as one. Uh, verse 26, he continues on. John, John writes a lot about the same thing, if you know his gospel. So in verse 26, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, when he says this in verse 26, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the same group of people that has this issue with him receiving, welcoming, embracing, and teaching the tax collectors and sinners. So this is the same group of people that he's teaching. But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never die. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus already tells us in his ministry that he is fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel 34. This is connected to his parable. The issue with us, our lostness, is the same issue as it was in Ezekiel 34. It's the same issue from Genesis chapter 3. It's the same issue from the beginning that we have gone astray. We are lost. We are separated. We need a Savior to come redeem us and save us from danger and toil from ourselves. This is the same context, and Jesus makes it clear, I am the one who does this. And to not neglect women, to be gentle with the women in the audience, he used another parable connected with this so that they would understand. Now, now I've, I've mentioned this before, but in Jesus' day, the culture was patriarchal. It was man-led, and there were certain rights that men had that women either didn't want or didn't have. It was just a difference. It was a different day. So you can fight all day what you think is right and wrong and how that works. The reality is this was the cultural context of their day. And so... He wanted to speak to the women who did not own sheep in the same way that the men did to connect with them. So he gives this parable. He tells them about a woman or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. Now, have you ever lost something that you spent a half a day looking for? Right? I hear some chuckling. That might have been yesterday, for all I know. Uh, you ever spent a long time? It's got to be something valuable, right? Have you ever heard of the, of the new bride who was washing dishes and dropped her wedding ring in the sink? There's actually a real story. Someone connected with me, related to me. The wife uh, dropped her uh, wedding ring in the sink, and even though she could have just told her husband, hey, could you help me? He was the kind of guy that I'm sure he had a basin wrench. She didn't. She spent half a day trying to maneuver some crazy sticky deal thing to try to reach into the drain and get her ring out. She just told her husband he would have got it out immediately, but she wanted to get it. She spent all day because it was valuable to her. Well, this is like the story of this woman with the coins. Uh, in Judaism, when a woman would get married or betrothed to a man, it was like they were already married, even though they didn't move in yet, if you know what I mean. Even though they didn't consummate yet, they, they were considered betrothed. And the woman would have a dowry. She would have stuff from her family and her closest friends that they would give her, like wedding gifts. You would get wedding gifts before the actual wedding uh, to prepare for the actual marriage. They wouldn't wait till the day of. And so she would receive. And she, in this day... 
which is actually still true today in the Middle East, uh, women would have what's called headdresses. There's a picture on the left of Jewish women with headdresses. It looks like there's little circle uh, metallic things. Those are coins. Um, to the right, there's a modern-day version of some ancient jewelry where they would have coins. Of course, back then, women would sew them on. They, they weren't metallurgy or whatever metal workers. They would, they would use sewing. They sewed a lot, and they would sew these coins on, and there would usually be at least 10, a lot of times even more than 10, but you would have 10 because you wanted to supply yourself with enough, enough income and enough, uh, basically, a, a nest egg uh, for your marriage. And so a bride would come to her husband. He would provide the home and the place. She would provide this. Now, in this day, they didn't have banks and credit cards online, all that stuff, Venmo, Cash App, whatever stuff. They, to have goods that you can transport and, and travel with was really important for them. So women would have these hairdresses. They'd also have other things that would keep their, uh, their goods and valuables on them when they travel. But this would be a very common thing, and it would be for brides that are getting married. Now, I want you to put yourself in her shoes, because this is important to understand the parable. It's a patriarchal system. This woman comes to her husband with this dowry, this part of their livelihood. What happens to this woman if her husband comes home after work and finds that one is missing? He's going to know how many she has. This is important to him, right? Do guys not pay attention to their money, their valuables, their stuff? Of course they do. In this society, it's likely that he's going to look at her and say, did you squander away our savings? Where is the coin? It was such a system that he could even divorce her based on an accusation that she squandered the money. Worst case scenario, she could be outcast or even stoned to death for being unfaithful to her husband. This, is, this didn't happen all the time, but this was possible. So when Jesus gives this parable, what he's wanting to do is get into the heart and mind of a woman who thinks that her livelihood is at stake. If I don't have this, my relationship... I mean, think about it. There's three values here. There's the sentimental value. This was from family and friends. There's the financial value. This actually is worth money. And now there's the relational value between her and her husband. What is he going to think? How am I going to convince him that I'm not doing the wrong thing when he's gone and away? And so this woman is in dire condition. She wants to find this. She sweeps the house. She lights a lamp. She, she does everything she can to find this coin. And Jesus is using this parable because he wants to get it in our hearts and minds how important these objects are to their owners. Because eventually he's trying to connect us to him. This is very important to me. This is very valuable to me, so much so that my only objective is to seek and to find it, to get it. That is my only objective. So, when the woman found her coin, it's not dramatic to say that she rejoiced greatly. Think about the relief she had, the joy she had because she found the coin. And the same was true for the, the man who owned his sheep. This is part of his livelihood. He was happy to get this back. So she's rejoicing, the, the guy who owns the sheep is rejoicing, and all this is Jesus' way of emphasizing their response, which is rejoicing. Jesus is wanting to emphasize the response to them seeking and finding. So verse five, back to the, 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 the guy who owned the sheep. When he has found it, talking about the lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. 
Now, this one's a little easier for me to get in touch with, okay? I just want, to I want you to imagine your mind's eye, okay? You own 100 sheep, and 99 of them are great. 99 of them are exactly where they need to be. They're exactly where you want them to be. They're doing exactly what they should be doing. But there's that one sheep, and I'm just going to call him Earl. There's Earl. And, and if your name's Earl, I'm really sorry. I, it's nothing against you. It's not personal. It's just a way for me to think of This just sounds like the right name to give this particular sheep. You got Earl. And this guy who owns 100 sheep, uh, Earl's missing again. I can't believe that. And he goes, and I got to find him. This is my livelihood. And he goes out, and he's searching. And I could just imagine, if it were me, if I were this guy, man, I'd be walking in the wilderness. I can't believe Earl did this for the 1,500th time. And I just, man, I should just let him just die. And he comes upon Earl. And there is dumb little Earl, just with his feet taken up. He's in some gutter somewhere, in some ditch. And you know, sheep can't live on their backs. They, they, the blood flow and everything else, they'll die. And plus, they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable anyway. They're super vulnerable on their backs, right? Like ants will eat them. Anyway, and they're not very big. Anyway, so this, he finds Earl, and he's like, Earl. He's just looking at him, and Earl's like, he doesn't know what's going on. He's like, okay, like, you know, he's not paying attention. And I could just imagine, if I were the shepherd of Earl, I'd be like, Earl, I should leave you here. I should leave you. There are wolves out there that would love to eat you. They deserve some Earl. They, you, and you deserve them. You deserve to be eaten. And then he has to pick Earl up. Now, I did some research on this. You know how much sheep weigh? They're not light. They're, they're 55 to 80-something kilograms, which turns into like 100-plus pounds to 170 pounds. I don't, have you ever tried to pick up 120 pounds of dead weight? I mean, I have kids, so I've tried this. It's very hard. I could just, if it were me, and I'm just like pushing him over, and I'm picking him up, and I got him on my shoulder. And for all we know, Earl's peeing on him because, you know, <laughs> sheep are dumb. He doesn't know. And I could just imagine, and he's not like walking rubber sole, you know, like he's not walking on flat ground. This is in the wilderness. He's having to trek back to where Earl should never have gone just to bring him back. And if it were me, I'd be complaining the whole time. I just, Kim, I'm going to shave you as soon as we get back. I'm cooking you up. I can't wait for some lamb stew. I would just be so upset. But not God. Not him. On purpose, Jesus in this story says, and when he found him, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Who's like that? Who sacrifices with a smile? Patient, merciful, kind. Unlike the tax collectors and sinners, unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees, either group, unlike us, he joyfully puts them on his shoulders. And one thing that this parable teaches us is, and I know this is true for all of us, we have all been tempted to feel like we're a burden to God. All of us. You ever feel like you're a burden? I still get that way. Countless times I've said these words, God, I wonder if you've ever had to deal with someone like me, a rich, spoiled brat that you continue over and over, a million chances, a million gifts. I have nothing to offer you. And you continue to treat me as if I am a favored son I'll never deserve it. I doubt I'll ever understand it. And I feel like I've got to be a burden. 
How could I not be a burden to him? If it were me, I'd be a, I'm already a burden to me. <laughs> How does he joyfully put me on his shoulders? Because God's not like us in our weakness, our impatience, our anger, our bitterness, our judgment, our slander, our self-righteousness, our lack of humility. God is not like us. No one is like him. He is the one and only one. And when he reveals himself to us, he says, hey, let me use this simple story to try to get it through your head. I love you. Unlike you know how to love or ever will love anything or anyone, I love you. And what Jesus does in this parable is invite us to rejoice with him. Rejoice with me, the parables say. Enjoy my joy. Join me in how much I love you. Join me in how much I desire to sacrifice you. Celebrate. Praise. I'm welcoming you in. I'm drawing you in. Why don't you sing loud for all to hear how much I love you? Do you have faith that God loves you like that? He's inviting him, join me. In verse in verse 6, about the, the shepherd, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together. Now he's bothering people, and he's not over the phone. Everyone in our day thinks, oh, he called them. He dialed them up. He texted them. Obviously, he didn't. You know, we have to think back in that day. When it's 105 degrees outside, I wouldn't want to go knock on my neighbor's door if his house was on fire. I just I don't want to go outside. These people are, the, the idea, the context of this is, He's going out of his way to tell his neighbors and tell his friends, rejoice with me. Enjoy this with me. I found my lost sheep. He's found. I got him. Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. There's more joy than this. If you can even fathom how joyful God is about it, he wants you to know there's more than that in heaven. For him, he has more joy rescuing us. When we repent, when we turn to him, there's more joy for him than we can understand. The same was true for the woman in verse 9. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together. She has a meeting saying, Rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. This important, valuable piece of property that means so much to me. I found it. Rejoice with me. I tell you in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about this. In the parable of the shepherd, it says there's more joy in heaven. What we imagine is the angels are doing this. Yes! Okay? Now, look at the next example with the woman. There's more joy in the presence of God's angels. Who re who's rejoicing there? Not the angels. You know who's rejoicing? God. God is singing and yelling with good, the, the proper yelling, rejoicing in heaven, having a party more than a woman who just saved her life in some context. 
just did so relieved. God himself is rejoicing in heaven and uh, just for this lost sinner. So, the lost need a savior, the Lord is the seeker, and now he invites us to join him in his rejoicing and his reaching. And that last part is something that's not present here in this parable, but is clearly present in the New Testament. God invites you and me to join him in reaching the lost. There is no other business for the church. There is no other reason why you're still here after being saved than to reach the lost. That is our mission. That is the mission. That's the only mission and the only ways through the church. God's desire, his hope, is that you would not only join him in rejoicing, that you would have his attitude towards sinners coming to him, but you would also be his hands and feet, the salt and the light of the earth, that you would go out and reach someone. So let me challenge you for this week. If you believe this parable, if you believe that God enjoys this this much, then would you do whatever it is possible every single day for this week? that you would pray every day for someone who's lost. Every day, pray for someone that is lost. And every single day, as long as you can, if it's up to you, whatever effort you need to make, share the gospel with them. Share the good news with them. Be loving to them, be kind, but share the gospel with somebody. They need to hear the good news that we have a creator God that made us in his image and we do not reflect him. We do not reflect his image right. It's called sin. We miss the mark. We fall short of the glory of God. We don't reflect his image and that sin separates us from God. It even separates us from each other. It earns death. The wages of sin is death. Notice it doesn't say the wage of sin is death. It's more than one. It's every day. Our sins continue to separate us and cause death between us and God and others, us and others. But God had a plan, and that was Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, a sinless life, to die on a cross. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He proved that he defeated death, that he conquered death, that he, in him there is life, eternal life, beyond death, beyond this punishment, and people have a choice. If they would turn to him in repentance, all that means is, my mind and heart are changed. I believe in what God says about my sin, and I turn toward him. I don't want my sin. I want you. And in faith, faith in Jesus, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is trusting Jesus that he is the Son of God, that only he can save us from our sins, that when he died, he died as a substitute for us. That was our punishment he took. He became sin, even though he didn't sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. If you share the good news with people... Give them the option to choose. Let them choose. Say, you can repent right now. You can believe right now. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You are God's one and only way that he wants to let the world know that he loves them and they can be saved from their sins. We are the ones that have to share the message. So if you hear this message and you hear about the shepherd, and you hear about the sheep, and you hear about God's heart towards sinners, and you know that it's true, do something about it. Be the church. Be his hands and feet. And don't let one more week go by where you're not praying for the lost and doing all that you can to share the good news for him. Because if you don't, 
we are totally off mission and we are not doing what God the Father has called us to do. His heart is to seek and to save the lost. And if you love him, you will join him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for these parables that are so simple yet impossible to do without you. So we pray, would you empower us with your spirit? Give us a heart like yours. Help us to see the lost in the way that you do. Help us not to neglect or ignore or barrier ourselves in that we, we miss what you have called us to do. Thank you for seeking and saving the lost. We would all be lost if you did not seek us out and save us. Would you use us for your glory to build your kingdom? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.